Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. The inside of children has never changed. It's the outside world that has. Welcome or welcome back to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with my guest, Wisteria. Oh, hello, hello. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here with you, Tiffany. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. So you are a teacher. I am a teacher. I wear many hats. I teach um, in Washington State. I actually teach kindergarten, and I think every day, why am I doing this? But I... <laughs> Um, and by the end, they're just so ready for first grade and it's so hard to give them away. But I, I get them well-trained, well-tuned, but the beginning is really long. So uh, yes, and then I also am an author and an influencer and I own my own business called Simple and Deep, which helps women understand attachment, what that is about, and then engage their stories of harm and heartache, which... Um, I truly believe is the way that we heal and we move forward, but also where we find some of our greatest purposes. Like um, it's, we sometimes will tell only little parts of our story or the parts like kind of like the highlight reel, but it's really the hardest things we've gone through and overcome that I believe give us the greatest meaning and depth in our life. And you're shaking your head. Yes. So I think you, you thought the same thing. And I think that's what kind of brought us together. So um, and then really, it's just about helping women understand that and then live more intentionally with purpose. You know, um, that's kind of what I went through my own journey and, and my own healing that brought me to doing what I do. So I wear many hats. I kind of straddle a fence of like professional life and business owner. So yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. But why not? Why not juggle a million things at once? Right. So I get it. Mm hmm. Did you want to go into your past? What led you there? Or I don't know yeah, where you sure. feel comfortable. You know, okay. Um, well, right now I'm in the process at the end of the month, as crazy as it is, I have a book, baby. I've been working on a book for over three years and it is releasing. It's called Waiting for Mr. Rogers. And it's such an amazing process to write a book. But to back up a little bit, um, the book is a culmination of about, I would say, well, my whole life, really, but it's really when I had tremendous uh, behavioral addictions for about 12 years, um, love and sex addiction, where I was acting out, I was um, having multiple affairs, I was I was just really tethering to the wrong people. And I wanted to know why I was sabotaging my life, because I had a great husband, beautiful children, had a great career. And I was like, why am I doing this? Like, what is this propensity I have to kind of seek this dopamine hit. And it ended up just shattering me because I eventually tethered to someone who was an abuser, a real true narcissist in every regard. And um, it just shattered me into a million pieces. But at the end of that, I crawled into therapy, just barely trying to survive. I was, my mind was just an absolute disaster. And when I said the same thing, why am I sabotaging my life? She said, well, you have insecure attachment. Like, and she said it's so matter of fact that I was like, I was kind of stunned by it because 
Like that, is that really what it all, like, what does that even mean? Right. And then she said all these words like attachment and attunement. And like, I I had no idea. Like I was so just wanting to survive. I wanted to save my marriage. I wanted to get well. And it was the first time, like, I don't know how many people that are listening to this or yourself have, have struggled with addiction, but one it's the addiction I was really enslaved to at that point was my own brain. So dopamine is, is basically you would detox off of that, like you're detoxing off of an opiate. So you have the same reactions. Like if I were detoxing off of heroin, so shakes, throwing up. Uh, So I had to look at anybody that was kind of from that, that way of life for me as like going back to a drug dealer or going and getting a hit. So I, I had to go through that process of understanding one first, just healing with all of the stuff that the narcissist had done to me and then going backwards through my own story. And I feel like healing is like an onion. So like the, the base of it, the the very first wound we have is broken attachment. And so it's our first heartbreak. So it, that starts with our mother. And then if we don't get enough of the good things we needed. So a lot of people will say, well, my mom did a good job, you know, like that's in the past or what have you. And it's not necessarily that uh, she didn't do what she was supposed to, but sometimes it's not getting enough of what we needed, that nurturance, that understanding, someone coming alongside us in hard moments. So uh, fast forward through that process, you're able to gain secure attachment from someone else that has it, which is what an infant usually does with their mother. And so I basically was able to gain secure attachment from my therapist because she had secure attachment. And so she was my first person that I was able to say, okay, this is a secure relationship as well as my husband. But all of it started to bleed to the surface when I became a mother because I just didn't know how to be one. I had had a buddy that raised me. Right. So I didn't have a mom. I had someone that wanted to be my buddy. Right. So, and later I learned that I had, that was in a very enmeshed, what they call relationships. So it ended up, uh, she basically made me like a surrogate spouse telling me all her secrets, wanting to protect me from abuse that she has sustained in her family. And because the abuser was still around. So she shared way too much with me about her own sexual abuse. And so that in turn abused me. Because, uh, you know, I heard all these things I shouldn't hear. Um, And late, you know, now we know that insecure attachment, especially anxious attachment is covert sexual abuse. So what happens is the child, everything is sexualized because you're not supposed to be in a relationship like a surrogate spouse with a parent. So that is like sexual abuse, right? It's invading your personal space, invading your boundaries, the same things that happen with sexual abuse. So it tainted my way of looking at intensity versus intimacy. The same things that get activated in our in our brain for pain also get activated for when we think we're falling in love with someone. So if someone's treating you like crap, it's actually making you feel like you're you have endorphins like you're falling in love. So what happens is that can happen in our brain and my last affair partner was the same dynamic that my brain experienced as a child with my mother because ambivalence is ambivalent or anxious attachment. A child is either smothered with love one minute and then their parent will then ignore them the next, right? So it creates the cycle in the brain of trying to 
hold on to some type of attention or connection. And so that activated that in my brain when I found an affair partner that would treat me poorly and then kind of love bomb me, right? So that's why you'll see a lot of people with anxious attachment tethering to abusers because it's almost like they can sense that about us that we have childhood trauma, right? So they can pick you out of a whole bar. Oh, why not, right? (laughs) I know. And it's like, I'm like, how are these people still finding me? But the thing is, is that there is narcissism from our childhood. And oftentimes it is one of our parents. And so the hard part about it is it's not very complex when you look at it from the perspective of like a quad, right? Like, so you have secure attachment. If you take a square and divide it into four equal pieces, the top part would be like secure, a child. So if you have secure attachment, you had a mother who you could return to over and over again, let's say thinking about a baby, the baby has a need, they cry, right? They need to know that they can return to their mother and that mother is going to respond quickly and appropriately. She's going to pick up the infant. Let's say they're, I'm thinking of them toddling around, right? So they're exploring their world. So she's going to, you know, change their diaper. She's going to feed them if they're hungry. She's going to tend to them if they've fallen and they need to be soothed. And then the child is going to take from that, from their mother, that comfort that they need and that reassurance. And then eventually as they calm, they will either fall asleep, which we see a lot of children will do if they've been upset, or they'll be ready to get down off the lap of their mother and go play again. So what happens is when a mother does not have their nervous system or the capability to meet the child's need, they'll either meet it really quickly and have very little connection with their child, right? Like going through the duty of just getting the job done, or they will, which becomes the child gets more of an avoidant attachment style because they learn that they are only there to have their needs met. And that's it. There's no cuddling. There's no talking about feelings. There's no explaining how something feels or how they sense things. They'll stop asking questions because they realize that that is not welcome. So if you see someone that has grown up with it, um, avoid an attachment, they will often, they will be perfectionists. They will be very, um, they, it will be very difficult for them to come up with ways to describe something. Yeah, you're shaking your head. Yes, again, right, Tiffany? Because I married and avoided. I married my opposite. And so I found a lot of soothing peace with how calm he is and how he didn't overreact with big emotions. But the thing is, is he was trained as a young infant that that would not matter if he cried because he would only be tended to when they saw that it was appropriate at the moment to meet his need. And that need did not trump anything else that was going on, right? Be seen, be quiet. So as I did my own studying of Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers had avoidant attachment. His mother was a hypochondriac. She was highly um, into uh, being a philanthropist and constantly having parlor parties. He was told to be quiet. He was not allowed to interrupt anything. And so he got avoidant attachment, right? So what happens is it's harder for people with avoidance to to say how they feel. So I've even put a chart in front of my husband and said, pick a feeling. And then he's able to say, oh, I feel disgusted. 
But like you'll see that a lot of times, um, let's say the same baby is toddling around with avoidance, they're not going to show hardly any emotion on their face. They're not going to really care if the mom comes or goes uh, because, and we'll think, oh my gosh, this baby is so chill. This baby is so, it's, it's just so easy. This baby has tremendous anxiety inside their body that they're not showing you. So you'll see a lot of people with avoidant attachment medicated for anxiety or depression later in life because they've bottled it. And what happens with emotions? When we have really strong emotions and we swallow them, they make us sick. So Fred Rogers died. Or we explode. Yes. (laughs) Or like, yeah, exactly. So then I have the opposite where um, someone I, you know, that I married into a family of avoidance. So all of a sudden, my father-in-law would say something just absolutely cruel out of nowhere. Like he wasn't talking. Then he would, when he finally spoke, he would say something that was so slicing, right? Because there was no lead up. It was like, he would explode, or but it was like the way he exploded was so mean that I he instantly would have to say or come later and say, I'm sorry, I love you. I I'm sorry I said that. But the thing is, is that there's no in-between. Like it's it's just it's it's just all of these things have extremes because of the fact that we didn't have enough of what we needed to be able to regulate that. Then the last, obviously, the last one in that square or that those those pieces of the of the avoidant or the, the, the attachment styles of children is that you have the dis- disorganized, which is much more current about what we know about trauma with children. And really a disorganized child or um, attachment style, they are either terrorized or they've watched someone they love be terrorized. So what happens with that is that we'll see this in extreme, like with children that have witnessed domestic violence or they've been around a lot of um, abuse and neglect, they will actually jump between the two styles that we spoke about, with which, which is the anxiety or the avoidant. And it will happen almost simultaneously because they're really trying to figure out how to survive. So all of these are ways that we learned as children how to survive in the world. So if we know that we cannot come to a mom because she's going to explode because a mother who is going back and forth between hot and cold, like my mother was, they have tremendous childhood wounds and pain that has not been addressed. So it keeps bleeding out on their children. So I would, I got really good and most people do with anxious attachment. We get really good at reading a room. And we can walk in and we can know exactly that something is off. We can feel it. We're very discerning for the sheer fact that we had to do that as children because we had to know how we were going to survive a moment. I needed to know if I was going to get the mommy that was going to smother me with love or the mom that was going to have mental illness and be all over her off of her rocker. So, and it, was she going to scream at me, right? Or was she going to, you know, freak out? So it was, it was one of those things where you become hypervigilant. Which also gets you ready for people with borderline personality or narcissism. You never know what's going to happen. And so you're trying to make everybody happy because you don't want them to yell at you or you don't want them to give you the look or they don't, you don't want them to smear you or leave you. So when you look at all of these different styles, everybody has a core fear. So like anxious attachment a child that grows up with that, we our biggest fear is that we are either going to be abandoned or rejected. 
right? That's like the biggest fear. Now, if you have an avoidant, their biggest fear is failure, that they failed or they will fail, right? And the disorganized child is afraid of everything. They are afraid of people will love me or people will leave me. It's both. So what happened was my own story of healing my attachment collided with a little boy who I call Blue Eyes in my book. And he's a fifth grader now. But when he entered my kindergarten classroom, it was a culmination of 15 years of teaching. I thought I pretty much knew what I was doing. I moved away from extreme poverty to take better care of myself because I was just abusing myself with my job at that point, right? So I was like, this is pretty swanky. Like I'm at a place with a PTO. Um, They're giving me extra money. Like I was like, this is so cool. So I taught there for a year and it went great. I didn't even have any behavioral issues. I was like, this is like so amazing. And, um, and then he walked into my classroom and he completely changed my life because he had disorganized attachment. He was a class A punk. Like he was awful. He was, he was so unbelievably awful and he was so broken. Like, so broken, Tiffany. Like, and what's interesting is the more that I learned about attachment, I realized like all, all heartache, all harm, all adversity, all poverty, all violence can be traced back to broken attachment. If someone would have had enough of the good things that they needed, they wouldn't want to keep passing on the crap that has happened to them because it's not like we have. The capability of not letting that stuff happen to us as children, but we have the responsibility for our own healing, right? So it's generational abuse. It is, right. And so I decided that I was really going to unpack it. I was going to unpack it for the sheer fact that I wanted to learn from it. And I wanted to use all that had happened to me as a way, because basically by the time she you know, diagnosed me, I had complex PTSD. So CPTSD, which they know is really from generational and repetitive developmental traumas, which are basically sum up broken attachment, as well as all of the different things that are adverse childhood experiences. And so, you know, teachers get these great lectures about like, these are all the aces, what they call them of, you know, ticks against children. Like if you've had divorce in your family, you've witnessed violence, you have someone incarcerated, you like, so those are like check marks, right? And you can take the, you can take an ACEs quiz anywhere if people type in the word ACEs, ACEs quiz or test. And um, it's even in my book as well. But the thing is, is that this little boy walked in and he had nine out of the 11. So I'm thinking, great. He walked in, he was pretending, I swear he was trying to be Eminem as a rapper you know, sagging his pants. He was so beautiful though, because he had these beautiful, big blue eyes, little freckles on his nose. I mean, classic little, you know, American white boy. Right. But like, he was so broken and mean, like he was chest bumping and his mom was pregnant with another guy's, not his dad. His dad had just gotten out of jail and she's like, make sure you watch him. Cause he's probably going to show up high. And I'm like, great. Like, it was just so awful. And he was he was so hard. He was so, so hard. Like every time I would talk to him, he'd be like, I don't care. And like, just terrorize. He enjoyed terrorizing other children. And this is what teachers won't tell you is that 
these children are not uncommon anymore. Like they are really the ones that listen, the ones that come with secure attachment are few and far between now, Tiffany, when I, I've been teaching 24 years now. And there are more of him now than who we were growing up. I believe is, that. Yeah, it's really, really hard. And it's making teaching really sad and really hard, like to the point where I've seen some of the most prolific, amazing educators leave the profession because not only did we go through a pandemic, but we went, for instance, even just this last couple of days, I, you know, I'm trying to train children, you know, kindergartners, our, our hallways are long. I'll say to the older kids, like, please don't give them high fives as we're walking by. You need to move over to the side. And they're like, why? Like, these kids are just rude. Like, there's no reverence for the fact that I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. But you know what? I can see why they don't, because adults don't. Like we don't do our part oftentimes of what they need to know about how we treat people and, and because we don't talk to our children anymore. Like we spend so much time distracted away from them. So I have all these memories of my children, like, like going places with them, but I was completely distracted by my phone because that was my way of connecting with people that I was going to act out with. So the worst thing that ever happened to me was having a cell phone because it, it exposed me to, you know, all the people that weren't in the same room with me. Right. So we are, it's an absolute epidemic, massive proportions of like, we do not hang out with the people that are right next to us anymore. We cannot sit at any restaurant without pulling out our phone. When I really stopped to look at it, you know, like we've been at restaurants where like every single person is on their phone at a table. And like there's not times even I'll look out that just for that. Like, cause a lot of times I'll might have it like on the seat or something, just in case like my kid was the call or something like that, but I'm not surfing it the whole time, but you'll look and there'll be like two, three people sitting at a table and nobody's talking. They're no. all on their phone. Yeah. And I'm like, and we are so superficial. And we think that because we get a like on Facebook or Instagram, that that is connection. So during the same time when I was just absolutely flabbergasted at what to do with this little boy, I started thinking about, well, what did I have? And I thought, well, I had Mr. Rogers. And that was literally, it was, it was like a, a last ditch effort because this kid was, I was like, he's going to freaking take me out. And I'm going to die by five-year-old kid with blue eyes. And I'm like, this is so unfair. Like I had taught kids that were way harder than him, but for some reason, the more that I healed, it made me more sensitive to his trauma. And then I was also watching teachers bleeding out on kids. I was watching people screaming at kids in the hallway. And I'm like, whoa, like, and I started thinking about, well, why did I become a teacher? And I didn't know. So like, it was crazy. Like I started studying my own story and I came across the work of Dan Allender. And if you're not familiar with him, he, he works in Seattle at the Allender Center. And his stuff is so profound because, you know, he does the whole spiritual component as well. But, but really, he says, you know, if we studied our story as much as we study all the other crap in our life that we study, like, okay, I'm going to do keto. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go on Pinterest and I'm going to read about it and I'm going to watch things on YouTube. And I'm like, we get so obsessed about once like something new, but we don't even study our own story. Like we don't ever look at our story and ask ourselves questions about it. Like, what are the themes of my life? You know, some people might be like, crap. 
you know, I'm like, that's not a theme, maybe. But the thing is, is that I started looking at my story, I started studying it. And I also started writing out my stories, really writing them because it does incredible, incredible things inside your brain to write. So I started doing that. And I came across, uh, I wrote out this story of when I was in third grade, and I had this horrendous teacher. And I'm telling you right now, I became a teacher sidebar, not even about this story, but I became a teacher because I had such crappy teachers. I had crappy teachers so many more times than I had good ones. The ones that I had were lovely and many of them made a difference in my life. Not a huge like, oh, I need to give them an award, but like people that loved me, you know, but overall I had really bad ones and I knew as a kid that they sucked. Did you have any, (laughs) did you have any of those where you're like, you suck and I know it, right? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And as a kid, you're just stuck with them for like nine freaking months. Like they just make (laughs) your life all hell. So it ended up that I thought about this story about, you know, um, I knew that we were making these jointed crafts where like they were skeletons. So I, you know, like you put the brad in and like the little fastener and then they became jointed and it was a skeleton. So I had to kind of put context together because Dan Adlander talks about like, even if you're doing a story of harm and heartache, like what, what was your, what color was your bedspread? What was on the walls? Like the more that we activate that for our brain and bring things back in our senses, it helps our brain integrate trauma because we need to name stories. We need to articulate what happened in them. We need to ponder things that we learned or what happened. And then we need to bless them in some way. And blessing them is not like, oh, and thank you, God, this happened. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, what can I do with this story? And sometimes this story becomes my honor to carry through life because one, I survived it. And two, I can make sense of it. So it makes me realize now the same story. This woman was horrendous to several people in the classroom. And I was one of the ones that she had chosen to, you know, give her rage and wrath to. And she made fun of kids all the time. She was very, very sarcastic and mean. I felt very singled out by her. I'd had a horrible car accident the year before and hit my head. And back in the 80s, we didn't call it brain injuries. We called it like slow or I had developmentally delayed or just something. But I was just really struggling with uh, fine motor was struggling with um, any memory. Yes. But, you know, it's still to this day, like I can't hold, I can't hold numbers in my head. Sometimes I will go somewhere several times and then I still need to put my GPS on because I might forget where to turn. And I see that now that's yes. Good. So it's the same. Yeah. You're raising your hand. So, but I, I was struggling and I didn't understand why. And she didn't like the fact that she had to put more time and attention into me. And now I know that as a teacher, but I was so hurt. And so under, I just didn't understand why my teacher before had loved me and been so worried about me. And then this lady hated me. So fast forward into the story, I guess I just had enough that day. I don't know what had happened, but I decided to ball up this stupid craft that she was making us do and throw it in the back of my desk and someone either ratted me out or she caught me, you know, because we don't have all the context, right? And so children will make up stories or we'll, we'll fill in the blanks. I just know I got in trouble and she started making fun of me. And I remember that I just had enough and I finally told her, I hate you. And like silence. And I told her, you are not supposed to treat me like this. 
this is not okay. You're not allowed to treat me like this. It silenced the room. And it also silenced her. And of course, the I remember the, the recess bell went off and everybody just jammed outside. Like they were like, she's going to die. Right? They're going to witness my execution. And so therefore, we are gone. And they just left me because they didn't care about me. And she told me to put my head down. But then after that, Tiffany, she couldn't say a word to me. And I realized going back, that was the moment I became a teacher because I have always told the truth about a situation. I'm a truth teller. And it silenced her. And I often will go into a situation and silence a bully. And it's somebody that I don't even really, I mean, I recognize they're a bully right away, but it's somebody else like that has gotten away with just crap forever. And I'm like, hey, and I call them out on it. Or I simply ask the wrong questions and people get mad, right? <laughs> like, what are you doing that for? And they're like, well, you don't ask questions, you know, like, and I'm like, <laughs> but it's, but it's one of those things, or I say what I think, like everybody else is thinking it, but I just say it. But my mouth got me in trouble so much. I was always in the corner. Guess what? Now I get paid for it. Now people want to talk about things. So it's the same thing. So it's like, so I, so I meet this little boy who's got a big fat mouth like me and he's broken. So it's like, it wasn't by chance to know that my story collided with his because I would understand what it's like to have so many things to say. And to be so angry that I wasn't given someone to give me their ear to really listen to what I have to say. They're always telling me how they feel about something or how I've influenced how they feel or I did something wrong. But like to really just like bend down and say, just tell me what's going on, right? Like just listening. So I started to play Mr. Rogers every day because I thought, you know... I, uh, this is a really long story and I'm sorry, but like, it's the idea that like, it wasn't just like one thing that happened. It was like, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but like all the puzzle pieces started to fit together and it started to change his brain. Like it, and I didn't realize now later, I do know that Fred was trained in the beginning of attachment. So he was using the neighborhood, not only as his congregation, because he was an ordained minister, but also he was using primitive, advanced attachment theory for children. And he was putting that into the show every single day for us. And he was attuning to the camera and he was acting as a secure base. And he was showing us and modeling to the world what a secure adult looks like for a child. And so he was going to school for child development, and then he was coming at night and taping the show and using it. Like, he was taking theory and like, okay, well, I'll try it over here. And some of it was really intense, like psychotherapy kind of stuff. But then other stuff was just very simple of just looking at the camera and pretending he was talking to one child, which is what children need. Like, when I'm talking to you, you're, you're giving me your undivided attention, Right. So, you know, your whole premise of what you're doing is, you know, trauma and, you know, sometimes things that have happened to us that are violent or what we've overcome. And the thing is, is that attachment truly is that first break. It breaks our soul. And then it opens us up to the possibility that the world is a broken place that's not going to care for us, that it's going to be harder to be loved. And so we will seek out ways to be loved 
that are simple substitutes for real love because anything feels better than nothing. And so I watched it with him, but I also watched it change all the children in my classroom. All of a sudden, they have, they're coming to me with no imagination. They're coming to me with, with, they don't have the ability to sit in a chair and just be quiet. They've never been told that they can just sit and be. They don't know how to play with a puppet. They don't know that they, that a steering wheel can become a car. They don't know any of the things. And I, I just started to like mourn my childhood. Like I started to mourn the solace of being near my grandmother and watching Mr. Rogers. I started to mourn all the things that I really believed in as a child, like climbing a tree and pretending you're a pirate or whatever it might be. And like, and Fred brings that back. And so it's not like watching a cartoon of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which they've done with his legacy, but it annoys me because of the fact that we need him, like a physical adult that's showing children and modeling that for us and not making it a tiger. <laughs> like, that's so confusing, right? A tiger now right. is wearing a sweater. So uh, it's, it's so, I was like, no, 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 no. I want them to feel what I felt. And so I made a pact with myself. Um, my mentor kind of said, you know, okay, if you're going to do this, I'm going to challenge you. She was a retired teacher. And she said, I want you to sit in front of the screen while you watch it and model to them how to take it in and let love show up and change you. And I was like, okay. Like I was like, whatever, I'll do it. So I put my phone down or I would turn it off. And it was like, I would physically do that ritual every day where I'd walk over and I would flip it over not just turn it, like just put it down, but flip it over to show myself I am putting this away. And we never skip the intro. You know, you can skip an intro like on Prime or whatever. Uh, I never skipped the intro so they could hear the trolley and, and the, the theme music. And I pulled up a chair and I just said, come sit with me. And it started to become this beautiful process where everything slowed down. And I started putting this this little boy in front of me every day and just putting my hands in his hair and rubbing his forehead or rubbing his back. And they started to just kind of start to cuddle next to me and everything slowed down. And it became this like beautiful, sacred, holy, amazing thing because it was like we got to time travel together. And then he would say things that I needed him to say. And I didn't even realize he was going to, and I would cry and like, but it was like such an amazing process of just slowing down. And all of a sudden they got creative. You're showing them what they were missing. But I wasn't doing it alone. Like I say, I honestly feel like he is now my teaching partner. And we have, for the last four and a half years, Fred Rogers and I have taught kindergarten. We have not missed one day, not even during the pandemic. I watched it twice. Like I would have one group in the morning and one, we watched it twice. We watched it up on the screen. And sometimes I would come back after sharing my screen and several of them would be asleep. And I'm like, sweet. They fell asleep with Fred. Like, and I got to know. So in 2019, I was given access to his personal papers. And so I got to go into the archives and sit with his handwriting and his notes and his doodles and his dreams and his aspirations. And I was there almost by myself. There was only a couple people in the building and his sweaters are there and his shoes and the puppets and his desk and the trolley is there. And every day I would start like just putting my hands on the glass and just like asking him, like, what do you want me to find? And, and honestly, Tiffany, I just found his humanity. Like I found that he wasn't magic. He was exactly the way we knew he was. I mean, he was just playing himself. 
But more than anything, I found his intention, which was to always tell children the truth, to always show up when we say we are, to to tell children exactly how we feel and to not harm them. And if we do harm them, to say we're sorry. You know, how to physically approach a child, like to stop standing over them and to get on our knees and and to tell, like, touch children. Like, we've gotten so afraid of touching kids that we've made everybody creepy and everybody having an ulterior motive, which is like, what wins then? Evil wins. Darkness wins if we act like that. You know, like... It's so I, I hug children and I tell them they matter to me and I tell them that they can never lose my love. And I tell them that, you know, that they matter. And, and every time we watch Mr. Rogers, I say, you know, we're going to open our hearts and we're going to just receive from Mr. Rogers and thank him for what he did for us. And when they ask questions like, is Mr. Rogers dead? Because they do every year. And I'm like, yes, he died. He died of cancer in his tummy. But you know what? He loved children so much. He left almost 900 episodes. And so we can see him every day. And what do we know? Tomorrow he's going to come through the door and he's going to smile at us and he's going to sing to us. And then we're going to spend time with him. And then he's going to go back out and then he's going to come back in. And let me tell you, right now we're still dealing with the I miss my mommy. And some of them are still crying when they come in. And so every day we say, what do we know? And it's totally from Fred. What do we know? Grownups come back. Why? Because they love us and they want to. And that's really helped me with deadbeat dads and selfish mommies and people that don't come back. Well, they're not coming back because they don't want to right now. It has nothing to do with your value. It has everything to do with them being selfish and thinking about only them. And if I were your mommy or I was someone that could pick you up every day, I would always show up because that's what you you mean to me. So like, and they're like, oh, okay, peace. Like when we had COVID going on, I was like, COVID is an adult problem. You do not have to solve adult problems. Like sometimes, so everything that hurt me, I'm able to redeem and bless. Remember that, that's that word bless. Like I get to go back and bless my story now. Like it's like giving a middle finger to all the crap that ever happened to me. Like I had a crappy kindergarten teacher, you know? And so I think to myself, every time a child writes in my book or every time they do something that would have totally made her mad, I change it, Right. I have my own stuffies from when I was three and four in my classroom. And so when they need solace, I'm like, do you want to go get Kuali? Do you want to go get Dugan? And so like, they'll go and get my own stuffies. And like now, of course, one of them has a Mr. Rogers t-shirt and one of them has a red sweater that zips, but they're still my stuffies. <laughs> like, because I, I took something from my childhood and now I'm like, because Fred says, you know, I'm taking care of you for once I was little too, but now I take care of you. Like, so those were mine. So I have a picture of me in kindergarten and I have something that I drew on the wall in a frame. And I'm like, look, you're not always going to draw like this. You're not always going to, it's not going to be hard all the time. Like, so my job is to teach them. And that's why I get so ticked because now teaching has become really about and like, it's okay. And, um, measuring where kids are at. And I'm like, oh my God, like what matters to me is that children can be decent human beings. And I have a couple selfish whoppers right now that I'm like, oh man, oh man, you know? And I'm like, and so today we were talking about saying that you're sorry to someone when you hurt them or, you know, you know that you've wronged them. It's not about being right. It's about loving the person more than you love being right or getting what you want. And so we're going to be working on that for a very long time because I have about five that I'm like, oh, man, 
they're just selfish. Like, oh, like they're just, everything is about them. And we're not helping children by not giving them boundaries. And that was another thing Fred was really big on. And so I always tell my children in the classroom, why do I discipline you? And they said, because you love us. Yes, because I love you. And my job is to keep you safe, but it's also to help you know how to help other people in the world. And if I don't tell you where the boundaries are, they're going to push and find them anyway. Yeah, but discipline is love. And so there's times I have one that's just, oh, she's giving me a run for my money. And I'm like, don't do that. No. And she looks at me and wants to pout. And I said, okay, here's the deal. You can do that. But it's just going to be a lot. And finally, I said, you know what? I'm an only child. I I need to let you know she's a twin, right? So like, I'm like, I'm an only child and I always win. And this is my kingdom, dude. So like, figure it out. Like, I will help you, but I don't teach babies or jerks. (laughs) Like, we don't need more jerks in the world, right? So if you're going to do that, that's cool. Like, you can do that, but you're going to miss this over here. And I'm sorry. Like, that's just not going to happen here. Like, no. Absolutely not. So it's it's really the book itself is just a culmination of him learning blue eyes, but also the other children that there is some real magic in slowing down. Like the other day, this is the ninth day of kindergarten that I taught today. I'm not even at freaking day 10. And I'm like, oh God. Seriously. <laughs> like I'm like, sometimes I'm like, you know what the worst part of day nine is? And they're like, what? And I'm like, day 10 comes tomorrow and I have to come back. Like, I'm just like, oh, my God. Not that I don't love it, but it's so, so hard. It's so hard. It's draining. Well, it's draining. And it's also like they don't know the words to Fred yet. And so I'm the only one singing and they're talking during him. And I'm like, don't do that during Mr. Rogers. And no, we don't go potty during Mr. Rogers. No. So, like, it's a really quick process for them to start getting used to him. But those, like, two weeks where they just don't get it yet, I'm like, it's awful. Like, I want to tell Fred, like, Fred, we're in hell. We're in hell right now, you and I, together with these horribly rotten, <laughs> non-attuned children who cannot. I'm like, uh. And my son's always like, Mama, just wait. It's, it's only going to be like a couple days and they'll start loving Fred. And I'm like, I, don't, I just don't even care when Mr. McFeely comes in and I'm just, I'm in hell. But I go back because eventually they'll love it, right? And they fall in love. And it's it's a legacy that I'm trying to leave with the children that I teach, but it's Fred isn't mine. He belonged to all of us. And it's more about not necessarily becoming Mr. Rogers for children, but it's also about like not waiting for someone else to come and tell us what to do when we know what we can do. What children needed when they were little is the same thing they need now. Right. He has this great quote where he says, the insides of children have never changed. It's the outside world that has. And we try Absolutely. to apply, yeah, we've tried to apply the outside world to the inside needs of children. So yes, we can give them a smartphone, but what do they really need? And he goes back to that, a lap. They just need a lap. So one of my big challenges when we first started back a long time ago, it feels like, was can you give your child 28 minutes? Because that's how long an episode was. And they look at me like, I mean, during like, I don't feel like it's a good t- parent teacher conference in, sl- in case, unless like at least a couple people cry out of either conviction, <laughs> conviction or thankfulness. So one, I'm telling them how wonderful and beautiful their children are, which I do, even if they're snots, right? Because I'm trying to train them. So I will get that to go away. 
luckily sometimes they do it in front of me and I'm like, oh, don't you even. And then the mom hears that and they're like, oh, okay. But but more than anything, um, I was amazed at how many dads started to cry when I talked about Mr. Rogers. Because here's the deal. We have implicit memory and explicit memory. So we do not remember a lot before the age of, let's say, like seven or eight. Like we make we make memories, but uh, our brain is functioning so quickly and we're learning so much when we're little, right? So what happens, we have our memories are stored in our nervous system, which we now know with trauma or any of those kind of things. So we have this trigger, right? And that trigger is from our senses. We smell someone's cologne. We feel something. We hear a song, right? That's a trigger. So that comes through our senses, which then in turn, you know, uh, activates our nervous system and we have a fight flight response or whatever that response might be. Well, a visceral, emotional response to Mr. Rogers. People see Fred and they start to cry many times. And people are like, I don't, like they even had a documentary and Sarah Silverman was like, I don't know why I'm crying. He's just watching kittens be born. But it's like, what is the deal? Well, it's because it's felt safety. Our bodies feel safe in his company, as well as it. we took his words into our implicit memory and we know how he made us feel. And so that is how I want children to encounter me and my life is that, and it's happened, it's happened um, where a child will come back. I've unfortunately now I can say I've had people and then I've had their children, like not completely as kindergartners, but I've had like, I taught them as teenagers and now I've taught their children. And I'm like, oh my God. Um, and I'm like, how are you in kindergarten? Weren't you just in your mommy's tummy? And he's like, no. And I'm like, oh, like, so I'm like, you're the last penny. Like I've had all the pennies, right? Like you're the last one. Like I'm finishing off families. They're not allowed to breed anymore, right? Like, <laughs> but like, but it's the idea that like, they'll say, I remember being in here and I remember how it made me feel because they're not going to remember kindergarten. Like they sometimes they'll forget Mr. Rogers' name by the time they get to second grade, which breaks my freaking heart. And I'm like, what? And they're like, that guy we watched. And I'm like, oh, I just want to kick myself. But they remember it, right? So they know what it felt like. So the same thing where uh, people will cry because we took in what he was saying as a child and we believed it. We just flat out believed it. We believed that he was good. We believed he was coming back. We believed that we would be safe in his care. We believed it because it was solid attachment. We literally securely attached to Fred Rogers through a screen. So think about how powerful that is. We attach to him through a screen, but yet we have one-on-one contact with children every day in our different capacities, whether it's our own or someone else's that we serve. And we could do that. Like, it's easier. Like, he couldn't reach out. Like, he says one time, I wish I could share this popcorn with you. Can you pretend that you're reaching your hand out? And so all these little fingers in my classroom start extending towards the screen, waiting for him to just, yeah. Like, 
What a gift to be able to be the hand that I have that's behind them that can put my hand on their head or to put my hand on their back and say, you know what, mommies always come back. And what's crazy is I had a little boy that's been crying for like the first couple of days, just sobbing. And he goes, it's just so hard because I've never been away from my mommy. And I said, I totally get it, dude. I so get it. Here's the one thing I could tell you. One, I never keep a kindergartner. I never want to take anybody home with me. So we're good. And two, she's always going to come back because mommies love their babies and they come back. And so I was telling him this and, you know, doing my whole thing, my, you know, the thing I have to do, like the song and dance number. And we're sitting there watching Fred like two hours later. And here is Lady Elaine Fairchild, you know, the one that everybody's scared of. She takes that because it was an old witch puppet that he used with the big nose, right? She's mad because King Friday says that she is not allowed to play anymore. So she takes the museum go round and she leaves and it's empty and they're sad and they miss her, right? So here's the simple idea of Fred using, and Fred did most of the puppets in the neighborhood of make-believe, right? So he takes Lady Elaine, who is actually a puppet that's making fun of his sister, which is hilarious too. Her name was Elaine or Lainey. But anyways, he takes her away and they're saying that they want her to come back. And they said, well, why? And she's like, well, why would I want to come back when they were trying to explain it? And he said, because we love you and we want you to come back. And she goes, well, and then she decides that she's going to come back. Right in the middle of it, the same little boy turns around completely wide-eyed and looks at me and he goes, oh, that's just like you said, like my mommy's going to come back today, isn't she? And that moment was the moment he believed. And guess what? He has not cried ever since because he finally believed the truth because the truth was simple. It was told to him again and again and again. And then he believed it. Like, it's going to be hard. It's going to be, we watch Mr. Rogers at the same time. And sometimes when Mr. Rogers is long, what do we know? When the trolley comes back through the tunnel, Mr. Rogers is going to tell us something and then he's going to change his shoes and then he's going to go out the door. So that's predictable, right? Children need predictability. They need routine. They need to know what's going to be expected next. Well, what time are we going to have lunch? Well, it's the same time. What do we do before lunch? Oh, we, we do a brain break. Oh, yeah. And then we do this. Right? Like, and, and if it changes, do you need to figure out what we do next? No. Who will take care of you? Mrs. Edwards will take care of you. So it's the same idea, like allowing children the grace to know what's expected, but also those of us who grew up with unpredictable homes or parents, that unpredictability triggers massive amounts of anxiety. So children will follow me around the room with their eyes. They'll, um, They just want to know the schedule. They're rigid about schedules. They'll need to know. Like, it's just crazy where you'll see these attachment styles popping up. And so, but knowing that has really given me such tremendous help because now I know, basically, I can see what the symptoms are, right? And so instead of treating the symptoms like depression and um, gambling addictions and all the things that we end up popping up with as adults, if we go back and we actually heal the first wound we ever had, that actually, boom, boom, Chikaraka. Welcome to murder and mimosis. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. Together, as a mother and daughter duo, we host Murder Mimosas, true crime podcast with an episode released every Saturday at 10 a.m., so you can listen to it during prime brunch time. While we don't require a mimosa, we do highly recommend one. 
All of our episodes are cases that we found really interesting or just really stuck with us because we hope they'll do the same for you. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, I've been saying that if we could get to children when they're young and if they're going through something at home, help rewire that brain, we will have less issues in the future. It will. But you know what? It starts with us. It starts with us rewiring our brain first because they cannot attune to an adult that doesn't get it. But this is the good news. It only takes us getting it right 50% of the time for a child to be securely attached. So what does that really tell us about a lot of people? People really screwed up. Okay. So, and we need to stop making excuses, even for our parents, not because we don't love them, but because they are real human beings and we all suck and we all can be selfish. Right. So, and we have tremendous, and Freddie even talks about that. He even talked about it today and he sang the song, sometimes people are good and they do the things they should, but the very same people who are good sometimes are the very same people who are bad sometimes. It's funny, but it's true. It's the same, isn't it for me and for you? And so helping children see like when you make bad choices, it does not mean you are bad. But we need to also realize that as our parents, they had broken attachment too, most of the time. And so what happens is if they don't know that, they are passing on their coping strategies, they are passing on their intergenerational trauma, their epigenetics, all of the things that make them who they are, right? So they're going to parent us in the same style or the opposite of the style that they had, right? And they're going to pass that on. So what we have to do is first, we have to heal our own story and understand it, right? And make peace with it. Because if we don't make peace with who we are and our whole story and not leaving out the parts that we don't like, right? (laughs) Because those parts that we don't like are actually the parts that we have most in common with other people, believe it or not. We don't have a whole lot in common with someone's Tahiti story on Facebook, looking all nice. Like we're just like jerk. I wish I was there, right? Or I went to Tahiti (laughs) once, but like what? Okay, great. Wonderful, right? But it's, What do you notice about when someone goes into crisis mode on Facebook? Like when someone's like, all of a sudden their, their husband dies or their child is hospitalized or everybody starts telling what stories or they start making connections like, or, or are you looking for a good doctor? I would recommend, right? All of a sudden people's stories start coming out and it's stories that we crave and it's stories that heal. If you look at any, you know, any big teachers, even Jesus, like telling stories, right? So Fred used the the neighborhood of make-believe like parables, like when Jesus would tell stories. He wanted children to understand what love can do, right? But he didn't also want it to exclude children. So he never said God. He always said love. So everybody can experience God through love, right? And that God is love. So it's the same idea, the same principle that... In every religion, in every facet, like there are certain things that all people can adhere to, goodness and kindness, gentleness, right? Even if you say those are the fruits of the spirit, it's still the same mode. And and he became much more of a, almost a Quaker by the time he died because he really believed love was everywhere and God was everywhere and God was in all people. And starting to see that everybody was significant and all people deserved to be treated with kindness and and gentleness and humanity, right? So it's it's exactly it. And 
it's not easy work. And I think that's what's like when people are off selling their businesses, I'm like, oh, great. So I'm like in the business of like looking at your trauma and like, oh, that's going to sell hot, like hot cakes, right? Like, if, but I just know that it changed my life. And the same little boy, I don't want to give the book away because it comes out soon, but I, I really believe, and it's not just for teachers because it says it's called Waiting for Mr. Rogers, Teaching with Attachment, Attunement, and Intention, but it's really about loving with attachment, attunement, and attention. And first and foremost, loving the child that you were because you need to go back and, and speak with her or him and let them know that you are a wise adult and that you've survived all the hardest days of your life and that you are going to take care of them now. Like taking that back from your caregivers or whoever, you know, maybe you didn't have caregivers, maybe you were orphaned or fostered. And so I think it's really important that you take the responsibility of saying from now on, from this moment, I'm going to keep you safe. I'm not going to put you in situations that are going to hurt you or harm you. I'm going to figure out why we might be feeling this way and acknowledging that if we have these big feelings that erupt from us, that it's okay. It's permissible to feel whatever we feel. And that was a big thing for Fred. Like he got so mad when people would say, don't cry. He's like, you know, but he'd been told not to cry forever. And he's like, you know, that didn't really do me a whole lot of good, right? Like children need to cry. So I told this same little boy, you know, that was crying for his mom, like, it's, it's okay, just get it out. Because it's really good for your nervous system to get it out. But then there's a time for crying and there's a time for no more crying. Like we need to trust that Mrs. Edwards will keep you safe. So it's right. It's just like felt safety, right? Like, so I've often said secure attachment feels like spending time with Mr. Rogers. That's what it feels like, how you would feel watching him. And we talk about four, we have four colors. Are you red? Which obviously would go with with mad or frustrated blue is, um, you know, tired. They like to, they love every year. They, I don't even tell them this. They always say that blue is sad, but it's also tired. So they're always like, man, one of my kids last year would always go, I'm exhausted. And I'm like, wow, that's a big word. I'm like, I feel you dude. Um, and then we have obviously yellow is for happy or joyful or excited. And then green is calm. And so we just say that's that's like spending time with him, like how we should feel. And it's funny, too, because he'll be on and it's like I said, it's very holy and sacred. But like I finally told one of the secretaries years ago, I'm like, do not call during Mr. Rogers for fear of death and me being really grouchy because I'm like, it is a no go, no fly zone. And it's funny because people will like open the door and they'll see it and they'll be like, oh, and they'll back out or at the beginning, though, when I didn't tell people we were doing it, they would walk in and adults would watch for a minute and they'd just sit down and start watching. Like they would they would come in with like papers in their hand or something majorly important to tell me or to get a child. And then they would just sit down and all of a sudden they'd watched all of Fred with us. Right. So that's my my urge for people is to remember how to slow down. It's the first key in any way of activating new, like really creating those new neural pathways and rewiring our brains. It is possible. That's the thing is it is possible. Um, and it didn't, it wasn't like automatic, but the thing is, is it started to change this little boy's brain and it started to change his reactions and it started to change 
started to change him because I wasn't looking at just his behaviors. I was looking at his brain. I was doing things that were going to stay with him for the rest of his life. And his journey, our journey together, he and I has been so extraordinary because he'll come in and share like his deepest pains and his heartache with me. And his dad has since in this last couple of weeks has decided he wants nothing to do with him in his life now and has abandoned him. And I, I sat with him and I was like, I need you to say out loud, my dad is being a fool. <laughs> and he was like, my dad's being a fool. And he, cause I want kids to say what they're feeling and people might be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you made him say that. Well, yeah, his dad's being a total, like horrible, like who does that to their child on purpose? And he's literally choosing his new girlfriend and her children over his son. And it's not okay. And I want him to know when I look at you, you are so valuable to me. And so I said, I need you to promise or to tell me two things. And he said, what? what? He's hot. He's hurt. And I said, you have every right to be super mad about this. It's okay to be mad, really mad about it. I mean, okay. And then the second one, I said, first, first, I need to tell you that I will never lose you and I will never abandon you. I will always find you. I will always seek you out. I will be the most annoying person in your entire life. I will be at every event you ever do. And you'll be like, oh, my, because I used to say he's so freaking smart and manipulative that he's either going to pull off the next Enron scheme and live in the Cayman Islands as a freaking millionaire. Or I'm going to be visiting him at San Quentin, like one of the two, like he's like, I could just see the writing on the wall and I don't want to pigeonhole him, but oh my God, like there's like, he's a child of extreme. So we we might as well go there. Right. But I just said, (laughs) promise me something. I said, if you ever have a little boy someday, promise me that you will never, ever leave him. And he said, I would never leave a little boy if he were mine. And I said, that's all I need to know. I said, that's you changing it. That's you changing your story. Like, and it might take a long time for you to change the story, but I know that you would never do that. And you are not your daddy. Like you are not your dad. So empowering, because it only takes one child, one person to change the trajectory of a child's life. That's where the resilience comes from. And if we've ever overcome any adversity, it was one person that came alongside us. And sometimes it's that one person that just says, you need to fix this. This is a big problem. Like you need to get it together. You know, it could be like, it's just, it's, but we have to choose to get well for ourselves, not for someone else. Like we want to, we have to really want to be well, like do not drag someone you love to an intervention. It's not going to work nine times out of 10, unless they're like locked somewhere for many, many days. And like, they have no phone and they like, you know what I'm saying? And many people have gone through, right? Like many people have gone through those rehabs many times because guess what? The first time they were pulled in there, they didn't really didn't want to get well. They're getting, and I mean, even my own mother, like she's gone to therapy and the lady was like, do you want to be well for you? Or do you want to be well because your daughter wants you to be well? Right. She's like, I just want relationship with my daughter. And she goes, that's not for you. It's for her. And guess what? Children sense a phony too, right? Don't do that. Like, it's better to be brutally honest and say, no, you know what? I would rather get high right now. That's what I want to do. Like, be honest versus like pretending you're getting well so that people have this little, especially children, that they have this sliver of hope that you're going to be okay. And then you don't get better. Like, I can't tell you how many times I did that to people I love. And so then I had to really prove to them with my own behavior and my own commitment to my wellness that like, 
this is a non-negotiable. So now Mr. Rogers is a non-negotiable part of our day. I don't care if I get to music, like not to music, but if I, if I don't get to, I don't teach music. That's my one time off. Right. So, um, no, but I don't care if we get to reading or math or whatever. And people will be like, Oh my God, but guess what? They have to be a human being the rest of their lives. And they have to be a good one because what the world does not need any more jerks or babies. Right. So I need them to be able to work with other people. I need them to be able to be a good neighbor. I need them to not have road rage. Like we need kids that can grow up and take care of us when we're old people. Right. So like, I don't need these people. Like I don't want them acting like they are in kindergarten when I'm in a nursing home because they're going to treat me like crap. Right. You're going to be like, why do I care of this old lady? I have other things to do. It's not about me. Like, so I just, like, what kind of world do we want? Like, and we're so distracted that we're not really thinking about that the biggest trauma and tragedy of all is we're missing it. We're missing our children and we're taking their childhood away by what we either expose them to or what we don't expose them to. So, Take like take the time. And that was the big thing. One of my friends um, or someone that I worked with uh, has a foster child and he was like, I want him to be in your class. And I said, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I'm full. There's no there's no room at the end. Not even there's no room in the stable. It's full. Um, Unfortunately, probably 10 over, like as far as I'm concerned. But I said, can you do me a favor and watch Mr. Rogers with him for 28 minutes every day? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, without your phone. Like, people don't realize, like, oh, yeah, I'm sitting watching Mr. Rogers with my phone. No, not with your phone. And talk to him about it. Put him on your lap and tell him you love him. And just listen. Like, it works. It still works. And they don't care that people look like they're wearing 1970s clothes. They don't even notice. Right? So that's, <laughs> that's my soapbox for a long, long time. But, like, it's just, it works. And it's so it's always worked. He was right the whole time. He was right. He said, you know, I'm, I've become very convinced that deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex. And our world is so freaking shallow and complex. And the simplest things matter. They matter so much more than the things that we put our time and energy into. Like stopping and looking at something that's so minor to us that's slowing us down is to a child is wonderful. Right. So it's, it's really about that and giving us the gift of time because we don't have it anymore. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my story in a nutshell is like just allowing and it's healing me all the time. It's still healing me. I've watched Peggy Fleming on her ice skates so many freaking times now. But there's something really beautiful and funny about Fred Rogers trying not to fall on his butt the whole time because he can't do it, but he's trying. Right. So. (laughs) So it's just it's just it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to just be intentional about what we do. Like, how can we be more intentional? Right. I I think you need a Mr. Rogers tattoo. (laughs) You know what I don't need is a Mr. Rogers tattoo. One, because I am a freaking wimp. 
at all things. Like I stub my toe and I am in crisis. So probably I'm in the right spot because everything needs a Band-Aid where I live. And then I tell the school nurse pretty much all the time that she gets the crappiest Band-Aids ever and they are totally low class and they come off all the time. And then I have to pick them up. I, I don't even know what she has this year. I'm hoping I won't get to see them as often, but it, I seem to, I seem to, yeah. If I were to get an, a tattoo, I'm sure it would be, I don't know, something simple. Like he used to say one, four, three. So one being I, love is four letters and you is three, right? And then he prided himself on being 143 pounds. Like, and I'm like, dude, like he's so skinny, but, um, so, <laughs> You know, though, when I if you see his sweaters, they're just regular sweaters. He has orthotics in his shoes because he needed to stay comfortable. Daniel Tiger has the side of his paw, which is so beautiful to me. I wrote about it in the book, but the burlap on you can see it underneath where the the fake fur was because Fred would always extend that paw to Lady Aberlin or to anybody else and so people took that for years and years and years and it's just very symbolic to me of what does it take like the days where I don't feel like doing what I'm doing and I'm speaking to myself right now too but like what does it take regardless of what the profession we're in or the people we have in our lives or the the people we love or whatever it makes. But like, what does it take to show up every day and choose to be there in that moment? Like with those people, like not wishing we were somewhere else, not thinking about what we're going to do differently, but just be in the moment, fully in it. Right. Some of us are really scared. would probably be a better place. Right. And like, (laughs) People are afraid of silence too. like allow yourself the gift of time. Like don't don't distract yourself while you're driving, like sit in quiet. Our brain actually repairs in silence. I mean, that's the thing is I think it's just it's a challenge. It's a mindset is where I'm going with this, that it's a choice. And that's what he did, too. He chose it every day when he walked in and just chose to do it. You know, he wasn't magical even though we thought he was, right? Like he was just a regular human being who chose to serve others, to make the world a better place, to make the way. And the neighborhood is kind of like a symbol of what we could be for people if we chose to do it. Like like choosing to learn the custodian's name in your building when you're at your office, like to greet them by name. Right. Right. How about the guy that or the barista that you see every morning, but yet they pretend to have conversation with you. Right. Like, so what do you have planned today? And you're like, so what is your name? And you actually ask them, (laughs) greet them by that. Right. Like we are so self-centered. We don't even recognize that we're looking at people, real people every day. I mean, have you ever heard of the role of love? No, but it sounds good. Tell me about it. So you might want to get in touch with him. His name is Paul Zolman. And actually, I've had him on the show. Uh And so he made a dice. And it's all the love languages. Mm -hmm. And he gave it to teachers Mm. to every day, his kids or the kids will roll. Whatever it lands on is they have to practice that all day. 
Oh my freaking goodness. Yes, I absolutely want that. Oh, yep, it's called staff. the role of love. <laughs> I love it. No, but it's so good because yeah, like I said, you know, the whole idea, like it's just about being intentional, like thinking, how could I do this better? Like, and so that's and children are masters at finding ways to be the most obnoxious with those kind of things, but they're so awesome at it. Like, and they don't care that that's the grouchiest person in the building. Like they're going to go give them the hug and they're, and it's, I love it. Like I love to watch it and watch people just squirm, but it's like all of a sudden it starts to melt it because I look at anybody that's been a total crappy human being. And you know why? It's because they're broken. And my mentor said to me once, and I've never forgotten it. She said, people are mean because they're afraid of something. What are you afraid of? It might be that you're embarrassed. It might be you're afraid that people won't like what they see. You're you're afraid because you've, you reached out and someone hurt you. Like whatever they're afraid of, that is how they're protecting themselves is by being mean. So children, they don't think about that. They just barrel through right? Like they just go right, they go right in. And and a part of you is like, oh God, here it goes. Right. Like, but they don't put, children don't usually get pushed away like that. You know, it's when, when we challenge them, right. The role of love. That is so cool. Yes, absolutely. And it's R-O-L-E. And it comes with a journal. And so if the kids fill out the journal every day for like, a certain amount of days, they get a free yogurt. <laughs> what? That's cute. I love it. But more than yes. anything, it's just a, it's a practical way of helping children think about others before themselves. And we are, like That's I said, exactly center generation. Thanks for sharing that with me. And Tiffany, thanks for having me. I know it's like so much later where you are than I am. We're on a completely <laughs> opposite sides of the country, but I'm so grateful that you just reached out to me and wanted to share this space and of let me course. just go wah, wah, wah. Like I could talk <laughs> about this for hours. I have to be at a conference where they said, I said, no, I do get the whole 90 minutes. Right. And my colleague was like, Oh my God, I would die. If someone told me I had to talk that long. And I'm like, Oh, I could talk. <laughs> See, remember I stood in the corner for a long time. I've got a lot of time to make up here. So <laughs> I'm like, no, but, it, but I think when we find things that we're really passionate about, it's so much fun to share those things with people, right? Especially if it helps for me, at least if it helps them feel seen and heard, right. And known and that they have that resonance, like they feel as though that person gets me. That is the first step into a million wonderful places because then, I mean, we have that commonality of just the human race. Like we've all been human and we all have an attachment style. All of us. Like it's the one thing, like there's very few things we can say we all have, you know, whatever. But it's like, really, that's such a cool thing that we all have one. So. Um, just so you know, um, I wanted to tell you too, on my website, wisteriaedwards.com, so it's W-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A edwards.com. Um, I sound like an infomercial, but we have, um, for my, my company is called Simple and Deep. So I flipped Fred's quote because he said deep and simple, but mine is simple and deep. We have a 60 second 
quiz that you can take and it will actually give you your attachment style. And then it will also give you a customized report. So I would encourage anyone that's listening to this to do that. That's like the first step of just like identifying what it is. And there's a little like play on the symbols that are there, you know, like the sweater obviously is secure attachment, like Fred. And then, you know, anxious attachment is like Daniel Tiger because he's always so worried about everything. And Lady Elaine is much more like disorganized. And King Friday is like avoidant. Like he never wants to think that anything is wrong with anybody else and blah, 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 blah. You know, so I played on that. But more than anything, I just want to empower people that that it's available, right? And to to do the work, to find someone that really understands if they do want to engage their story, uh, that there are therapists and, and great, you know, people that can guide that process, right? That they can hold space. And if you find a therapist and they are crappy or you don't feel like they listen or you don't, don't stop, like leave them and find someone else. Right. And also, if you you know people that you really admire that have done the work, ask them who they saw or what they looked for or, you know, looking for people that do uh, like EMDR or childhood trauma, any of that kind of stuff. Don't just go to someone that's going to have you rehash it, like because that's just re-traumatizing you. You need someone that's very skilled and practiced at understanding story work and how to integrate and how to create this new balanced brain for you because it is really possible you can shift from I mean I did it like I'm a living example of that I remember when I finally got a quiz that said I was secure I like ran to my therapist I'm like oh my god and she was like well yeah and I'm like oh my god like how did that happen right I thought the same thing when I got an MRI the brain in it said there was nothing wrong I know. I'm like, oh, God, there might be some days where they scan my brain and I would be afraid of what they would find because, wow. But like, it's the same idea. Like, it's just we have such tremendous capacity for healing and to heal other people through our own experiences. Right. And nothing is more beautiful than thinking about reclaiming our childhoods and taking that back and finding ways to play and finding joy. It's so powerful. So, yeah. And then waiting for Mr. Rogers is out like on the 26th. It's like, like totally out, like never well, next going week back. Out? Like, like on the 26th of September, it's coming out. So it'll be available anywhere people buy books. And, um, and I just would love for people to read it, review it. And then if you love it, just give it to someone. Like, because I think I just want people to be free and know that that healing is so powerful and and easy to do if we just do it like if we engage it and say you know what it's time for me to to move from this and not be going around this mountain for the rest of my life right but and it's yep. it's through the eyes of uh, you know being a child and going back to fred and i would encourage people watch fred like if i mean it's it's powerful how much it can change you by just going back it's never too late you know so yeah. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you. This this was very interesting. Oh, good. <laughs> Links will be in the bottom of the show notes. If you know a teacher or somebody who could benefit off of this episode, please share it with them. It would really be beneficial to try to get children the help they need before they hit adulthood. 
please like, follow, subscribe, leave that five-star review. And have I or one of my guests, has this show impacted you? Has it made any changes to the way you think? I want to know about it. Go to crimeovercocktails.com and you can reach me either on email there or crimeovercocktails at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn. There's ways to get me, y'all. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll talk crime another time. Bye.